This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Roz Taylor. Let's meet our panel. Naomi Smith is Chief Exec at Best for Britain, and she's about to embark on a well-earned sabbatical from this podcast, which is obviously a shame. Hi, Naomi. Hi, Roz. Yeah, it is. Oh, I'm a bit sad about it now, um, but I have been doing the podcast for f- over five years, and the lazier panellists like Ian Dunt and Dorian Linsky um, have taken quite extended breaks during that period of time to you know just write a book or something that doesn't really take much effort whereas I've ploughed on and I'm now uh, at the stage where I definitely need to take a little break and focus on Best for Britain stuff because it's really ramping up but hopefully I'll be back in a couple of months time. Just when things are starting to get really really tough <laughs> yeah and maybe you could write a book too I'm trying to do that and uh, I'm not stopping podcasting I'm afraid everyone. So, exactly yeah. you know we're Women know how to graft. Exactly, multitasking. It's festival season in the UK, but in Europe, British artists are having a difficult time. Since Brexit, the number of British artists being booked in mainland Europe has gone down by 45%. Are Europeans tiring of Ed Sheeran or or is something else going on, Naomi? So um, at Best we did this work ourselves. So this was our research. And we analysed festivals like Benicassim in Spain and Lollapalooza in Germany. Um, And we looked at all of their playlists from set lists from the last few years and the average was taken from 2016 to 2019 and then compared with 2022 because obviously we had uh, lockdowns stopping uh, festivals happening in the interim Um, and the first uh, post-Brexit festival season has and post-COVID restrictions has just seen this marked drop in the number of British acts being booked to do those shows. And, you know, we've heard it from so many touring musicians, their equipment being seized and held in, you know, customs ports and just missing, uh, you know, stage times and things like that. And I think it's now just too administratively difficult to book as many British bands as previously, um, particularly if those artists and their crews don't have European passports. They will just have to be creative, won't they? Perhaps do an ABBA and have holograms of themselves projected onto European stages. In a bit. The commentator Alex Andreu also joins us. Hi, Alex. Hello, Rose. Uh, the Italian PM, Mario Draghi, has resigned after two parties boycotted a confidence vote in his government. His likely successor is the right-wing Brothers of Italy leader, Giorgio Melodi, who is actually a sister. Should we be worried about this? Um, yes, I mean... Italian politics right now is an absolute firestorm. Uh, Draghi basically had been appointed as a sort of unity prime minister because the vote was so fragmented among MPs that you needed several parties to form a coalition and none of them would do it with the head of another party at the helm, as it were. Um, And then it began to fall apart because the five-star movement, first of all, withdrew the support. Draghi actually went to the Italian president a week ago, submitted his resignation. The Italian president asked him to stay on. He asked parliament for a vote of confidence and as well as the five-star movement, both La Lega and uh, Forza Italia uh, both withdrew their support. So with three of the coalition parties gone, he had to resign. I'm not sure uh, Giorgia Belloni, the, the Fratelli d'Italia party. I don't think they will do it. So in the aggregate polls at the moment, they are only 1% ahead of the Social Democrats, which is Enrico Letta's party. The problem is that uh, Berlusconi's Forza Italia, the populist five-star movement, which is really both left and right, depending on the issue, 
and La Lega, which is itself a far-right party, they are fracturing. So they've had loads of resignations because not everyone agreed with them withdrawing support from Draghi. So they're all fracturing and dropping in the polls. You actually want them to be strong. You want them to fragment Giorgia Meloni's vote and the rest of the non-crazy population to sort of unite behind the Basta Fratelli tactical voting movement. We just should beware of UK media doing its usual, oh my God, the far right is about to take control of a major European country, because they do it all the time, even when it's not as a sort of foregone conclusion. So the outcome will be heavily imperfect. If Enrico Letta uh, wins, he will have to cooperate with some pretty nutty operators. On the other hand, if Meloni wins, she will also be restrained by various coalition partners. I mean, it's a shit show. Uno spettacolo de merda. That is, that is excellent pronunciation. Thank you, Alex. Our guest this week is the deputy political editor of the New Statesman, Rachel Wearmouth. Welcome to the show, Rachel. Hello, nice to be here. Liz Truss is still Foreign Secretary, even as she campaigns to be PM. And the government is basically in stasis until Johnson exits in September. What are the tough decisions that are being postponed because we can't make any decisions at the moment? I think everything's kind of just bobbing along, floating along. I mean, Parliament's in recess now, so there's a there's a break when government could meet and, you know, carry legislation through. So so that kind of deals with it to some extent. Um, but d- difficult decisions that we have to make. I mean, with, there's, there's all kinds that they could have got together and sorted out in, in relation to the delays at Dover this week. Um, there's the food crisis, you know, there is a fuel bills crisis, cost of living crisis. There are numerous things that are building up. I mean, the list is as long as your arm of the things that the next prime minister is going to have to sort out if and when it is indeed Liz Truss. And we're going to be talking about that very soon. Is she our next Prime Minister or could Rishi Sunak make a comeback? Plus, as we've just been saying, the country's in a mess. Who has a plan to fix it? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Eurovision will be hosted in the UK next year. But where? Swindon has already pulled out. The panel make our own bids. But first, a quick message from Naomi. Our next live show has just been announced. We'll be back at the Leicester Square Theatre in London on Wednesday the 14th of September. It's an old school Romaniacs cast of Ian, Alex, Dorian and Roz offering their congratulations to the new Prime Minister. If you're listening as a Patreon backer, you've got access to exclusive pre-sale tickets so you can secure the best seats in the house a week ahead of everyone else. And that's not all. You could also get a 10% discount and a discount on a bundle of tickets for for the price of three. Tickets are out for Patreons now, but they go on general sale on Wednesday the 3rd of August. So Patreons, check your emails for more info. Everyone else, search Patreon, oh god what now, and sign up. Who will be stripping off the gold wallpaper in number 10 on 5th of September? <laughs> Rishi Sunak did have a clear lead among MPs, but the consensus now seems to be that Liz Truss is the Tory membership's favourite. Neither of her performances in the debates this week have been stellar, although we never got to the end of Tuesdays after the host fainted. Sunak, though, has yet to land a killer blow. The public, on the other hand, are pretty evenly split about Truss and Sunak's merits. So what is it that makes Liz Truss so attractive to Tory members? Is her Thatcherite cosplay working? (laughs) And how much will this government really change if she wins power? Could things actually get worse? Rachel. (laughs) Over to you. (laughs) Sunak. Sunak came across as more competent. But he did keep interrupting Truss in the BBC debate and her camp accused him of aggressive mansplaining. And personally, I had some sympathy for the guy because she was clearly making some very dubious assertions. But did you find him overbearing? I think this goes to the two candidates and their differing levels of experience. So, um, you know, Liz Truss has been in the cabinet now since since David Cameron was prime minister and she's she's stuck it out. She's a she's a great survivor. I would never underestimate just how 
nails this woman is and how, how, how easily she can shapeshift. Sunak, by comparison, has only been chancellor for a couple of years. You know, biggest job in government, arguably, be behind the PM, but just that lack of experience, that 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 edge. I think she just knows how to do these debates. She's and she understands Tory members very very well, so she knows exactly who her pitch is. And I think I just wonder if Sunak really kind of has lacked the the sort of stomach for the fight, that kind of killer instinct that you would just get with the confidence of of some experience. I feel like she's running a very very targeted political campaign, and I feel like. Sunak is running a sort of glossy PR campaign. So I imagine that his advisors have said, you know, you've, you've, you've got to get in this. You've got to you've got to hit back. And I think, therefore, he's tried to intervene every five minutes. But if you know, if you're mansplaining, you're losing. And um, and he certainly that's that's how he came across. She certainly feels like the better campaigner. Mm. She knows the electorate and what they need right now. Whereas he is thinking about the country and the Tory membership, I think, are really very, very, very different from the average voter. Yeah, and this, uh, and I think sort of rumbling away in the background is this sort of bring back Boris Johnson <laughs> campaign, which, you know, I think from, from the outside looking in just seems ent- entirely ridiculous when you see the headlines that have followed the Prime Minister around for the last... Yeah, you know, he's obviously proved himself to be incapable of the job, but was it was extraordinarily popular with 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 that electorate with yeah. with conservative party members uh, i th- i thought in initially that this this grassroots campaign which is signed by you know more than 10,000 tory members now saying bring back boris we want him on the ballot i thought initially that this was some kind of genius campaign to big up the moment when liz truss would be endorsed by boris johnson but i think it is just it just speaks to where the membership is um, he, and he hasn't explicitly endorsed her. Um, he hasn't, but it seems kind of obvious that, yeah. that he will and that she is the Boris Johnson continuity candidate, you know, a bit more sort of bombastic. Whether he thinks in a Machiavellian way that <laughs> because she will fail or whether he actually believes in her. Yeah, it's not, it's not quite clear which, is it? One of our fellow presenters on Oh God, What Now, uh, Arthur Snell, compared listening to Trust to hearing a Minecraft character speak. And I've heard a lot of Minecraft characters speak in the last couple of years. I <laughs> That is quite a good description. Is she becoming any less robotic? Do you think? Um, uh, listeners can judge for themselves, but I, I, you know, I, I, um, <laughs> I, watch, watching her in the in the debate, I kind of, I think that's that's her calculating her her moves, you know, and she she, she very rarely makes mistakes. I've seen her interviewed um, by people at Conservative Party conference, and there is this pause before she yeah, makes her statement, and then it's yeah. and then it's worked out very. Very calculated. We saw a less robotic response. side Tuesday night in the um, Sun debate when the camera was on her. You couldn't see Sunak, so we don't know what his response was as uh, the presenter Kate McCann fainted and, and, and this sort of terrible noise. And we did see the non-robotic human face of somebody reacting to a horrible thing happening in front of them and then her rushing over. If Kate Burley passes out on Thursday, it will confirm... <laughs> My theory that Liz Truss is dull enough to kill. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex, Sunak accused Truss of being weak on China, and then she blamed him for exactly the same thing. Did they both have a point? Uh, no, neither has a point. China is not a country with whom a medium-sized economy can start a massive fight right now. That doesn't mean we have to love them and pet them and hug them and call them George like Conservative Prime Ministers did actually until very, very recently, but it cannot be ignored. It it needs very careful handling at arm's length. You know, neither xenophilia nor xenophobia. It, It is ridiculous for the UK to decide it wants to rattle its tiny sabre at China at a time when it is in turmoil with Russia, with the EU, with the United States, with large parts of the Middle East. I mean, it's called diplomacy for a reason. So the clearest dividing line between the two seems to be on tax. Trust thinks that cutting taxes will avert a recession. Sunak says it'll worsen inflation and lead to high interest rates, thereby leading to a recession. Is this the issue that is going to ultimately decide the contest, do you think? Um, It's an important issue. Neither of them seems to understand it. Um, Sunak, because he seems to assume that the inflationary pressures right now are, you know, domestic demand led, which they're not. 
and Liz trusts ditto because actually the tax cuts she proposes, she will then pump into the wrong places to stimulate the economy. You know, we tried this cutting corporation tax really, really low. Osborne tried it. It did nothing. It didn't improve productivity. It didn't, it didn't uh, draw in investment. So why, why are we doing the same thing again? I mean, I think ultimately the issue that will decide the contest is a bunch of old men going, I like her, she reminds me of Thatcher. I thought Sunak could win and win easily. I thought this last week by simply letting Truss talk, explain her plan. And then he decided he wouldn't let her talk and made himself look like an, an asshole. Um, you know, the overwhelming impression was of, a, of an intern two weeks into a job that thinks he should be running the entire organisation. He's, he's <laughs> and so, we've all he's, worked with those, Alex. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's just so recognisable. He's fluffed it. I, I think she's already won unless something goes catastrophically wrong. I think I the contest is over. He also, when he's criticising her fiscal stuff for being inflationary, also says, but, you know, it's wonderful that we've got the Bank of England that is independent and ultimately is the one that can control inflationary pressures. So he hasn't even got a sort of logical thread to his attacks on mm. her at the moment, even though her economics are dreadful. Yeah. And in fact, in fact, he's just he's just moved on to her ground, basically, that, with with, yeah. um, with with tax cuts because he committed um, of, overnight to um, cut VAT, VAT on fuel bills. Mm. Uh, and, and his argument will be, I will I will move into that space, but I'll do it in a more conservative with a small C kind of way. I will do limited tax cuts and but ultimately keep us on course. But I think I think I think. I think Liz Truss has recognised that she's dealing with a, a traumatised party that has lost lost a leader that it absolutely adored um, after a period in which it had so much hope behind Brexit, which hasn't delivered. So they're more likely to go for and she a more design. extreme candidate. They're more she, likely yeah. to go for Liz Truss. Yeah, she didn't knife him. Naomi, the BBC debate felt... I think none of us enjoyed it. I mean, <laughs> none of us appreciated it either. Why did it, why was it so unsatisfactory? Well, it wasn't for us, remember. You know, the audience, as we've said, the electorate is not us, I don't think. I'm pretty sure you're not a member of the Conservative Party. <laughs> but it, but in a sense it was, otherwise it wouldn't have been on TV at all. Um, I think the section of the Q&A was the clearest distillation that no matter what they'd have us believe, there is very, very little between them. It's the same old lies about Brexit, the same defence of the appalling Rwanda policy, same willingness to tear up the Northern Ireland Protocol and with it international uh, relations and, and future trade deals, the same agenda to remove our rights, same stuff on the right to strike and collective bargaining. So I think that sense of dissatisfaction is because they're allowed to indulge in complete fantasy and Rayworth and other journalists have just not had good rebuttals on the tips of their tongues to call any of it out and to challenge back. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think either of them were challenged on the fact that they have presided over the horrendous decline of this great nation, which they detailed ad nauseum, you know, lowest growth in the G7, taxes at a 70-year high, NHS in crisis. You were in government. You've both overseen all of this and you just don't really get any of the journalists that have been interviewing them so far calling that out. And, you know, we had far more on bloody earrings and shoes than we did on climate change or the NHS. Yeah, the earrings and shoes was bizarre because you could see the audience getting visibly annoyed yeah. by that focus and yet they still pressed forward with it. It was very, very odd. Mm. Rachel, Boris Johnson has continued hinting that he was unfairly ousted. Um, he told a tame journalist that he'd like to wipe away all the things that would stop him coming back. Good for him. <laughs> you said it was pretty unlikely that he could make a comeback. But on the other hand, so many bizarre things have happened in the last few years that I do wonder if it is possible. Um, I, I mean, the, the, this kind of goes to the question, I mean, if you could see inside the mind of, of Boris Johnson right now. I mean, does he want to stay as an MP after being, you know the big man in charge. Um, there's been a question about whether he would set up a new party and what, what, what he would do with it. You know, would it be some kind of levelling up party? I, I don't think that's a goer for him, rather. Um, at first, I don't think he'd get the funding to do it. Um, and it doesn't give him the prestige and the platform that he would get with being, you know, 
a former Conservative Party leader, still within that party, still have an influence. I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know what his financial situation is like. But, um, reportedly, not as good as he'd like good. it to be. <laughs> so, so he may he may therefore look to you know a lucrative speaking career in which he could go off and make loads of money and fund his large family. Um, <laughs> families, <laughs> but you know, you could see just when he gave that resignation speech, he he didn't even want to use the word resign. No. He didn't use the word resign. You know, I I think this this is a politician who doesn't want to let go, who will find the the lure of the of the main stage ever ever tempting, and I think he may not be able to to help himself whether. That will eventually drive his colleagues to utter frustration and insanity um, remains to be seen. But I don't I don't think he wants to let go. I but I don't know where that leads. If he ultimately. if he wants to wipe away the barriers to coming back, he'd probably have to wipe away the requirement to be an MP mm-hmm. because under Bessa Britain's last few rounds of seat level polling, he ain't holding that seat no. under any <laughs> scenario. So he'd have to probably find another seat to run in. And there's another issue there in that the Privileges Committee, which will look into whether he misled Parliament, um, c- could could find against him and he could be open to a recall petition. And that's, you know, that leaves him in a very, very difficult position facing a by-election, as you say, not likely to hold his seat. Well, Sunak did say he wouldn't invite him to serve in his cabinet and Trust, albeit only when pressed really quite hard, said that she was sure he wouldn't want to. Um, So I suppose that is slightly reassuring. Um, Alex, he reportedly wants to appoint a lot of new peers. Who will they be if he gets them through? Well, he's given us a a flavour. He was asked at PMQ's about it. And he says, and I've got the quote here, I think people who have done faithful service to this government deserve to be recognised, which is just a a comical misunderstanding of the constitutional status of the second chamber to start with. It's not there as some some sort of prize for your mates. Um, But, you know, expect all the media cronies who supported him, donors, hapless ministers who stayed loyal to him. People like that will feature heavily, I think. Can anyone stop him doing this? Not really. There are moves uh, because it's actually the House of Lords is really unhappy at these reports that Lords will be appointed. And there are moves to give statutory powers to the House of Lords Appointments Committee. But they would only apply after he's gone, you see. So, So they're kind of acting to stop it happening in future. I mean, it could be made politically very difficult for him to do it if enough Tory peers and grandees and MPs and cabinet people spoke out, but they won't. They, you just... I mean, they didn't over-Lebedev in enough numbers. I, I just don't think he'll he'll care how many people speak out against yeah. it. I think I think the tone of his last PMQs kind of gave you a clue as to his feelings about his own party. You know, the way he talked about that the herd moved against him was quite disparaging about his his mm. his his, um, his MP colleagues. You know, I mean, there was a MP uh, Chris Philp was on the Westminster Hour on uh, Sunday and was kind of like pleading on air for him to not misuse this 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 privilege that he has um, and saying, you know, show restraint. And I just, I just think I could imagine Boris Johnson sitting at home feeling like he, these are the last days of him being world king and just thinking, no, sod you, I'm going to do what I want. And I think yeah. he probably will. Naomi, Truss has moved steadily rightwards during her career and that's continued in this leadership campaign. Are we looking at a government that to all intents and purposes will not just resemble Johnson's but be even further right wing, I mean, with a bit less net zero, for example? I mean, she's certainly got the zeal of a convert to right wingery um, and I suspect was feeling that need to overcompensate because of her anti-monarchist Lib Dem Remainer past. There will probably be fewer ridiculous scandals. Maybe I'm wrong. There are rumours. But I think we can expect the same amount of cronyism and uh, and incompetence, particularly on the economy. I think there'll be more culture war with Truss um, than with Sunak and maybe uh, more than we've seen um, with, with Johnson. But as you pointed out, Roz, as people are feeling the pinch in their pockets and as inflation hits double digits towards the end of this year, I think that's going to, the cultural stuff is going to land very badly um, with the public at large because they'll just think, 
this is a nonsense. Why? Why you? You know, I don't care. Um, on the net zero point, that they're both still committed to net zero by 2050, but trust very ominously, as you point out, saying it has to be done in a way that doesn't harm businesses or consumers, whatever nonsense that means. Um, and I think that's a, a broad way to veto any action. Um, she wants to lift a ban on fracking, saying that she's not against it so long as the local community um, supports it. So local communities won't support, <laughs> support fracking anyway. Um, but yeah. what does local mean in that sentence? Indeed, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So they won't. She she won't be feeling much pressure to reach out to the party centre because it was supposed to be the case with this leadership contest yeah. that uh, they there would be a reaching out to more moderate people like perhaps Jeremy Hunt and so on and Tom Tugendhat. But that may not necessarily happen. I mean, she's gonna. <sighs> have to do a little bit of bridge building if she wants to have any chance of of winning the next election because she's going to face a tougher electorate than Johnson did. I think she's going to have a more difficult time painting herself as a fresh start as Johnson did after May because she is much more of a continuity Johnson figure and is up against a much more centrist opposition leader than, of course, Johnson was in Corbyn. Um, So should she reach out? Yes. Will she? I don't know if she's even got the the brain power to strategically think in that way. I have got a, a funny trust anecdote. Um, she was in this is probably about six months ago now. She was in Avocado, which is a cafe, um, uh, and it's it's the one that's sort of where Tot Hill and Broadway meet each other in SW1. And she was there with a couple of aides, and we were all still masked up, so maybe it was a bit longer than six months ago. And there was a huge long queue. And she started to complain about it. And she said, what's causing this long queue? And so I just turned around and said, not entirely sure, but I'm pretty certain it's got something to do with the government's immigration policy. (laughs) (laughs) And she glared at me. (laughs) Nice one. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Now let's take a question from a Patreon backer in But Your Emails. This week, Rod Thorpe has an extremely straightforward one. What one policy should the next Labour government introduce immediately they get into office to make the biggest impact, for the better, obviously, on ordinary people's lives? Alex, what do you reckon? A vast programme of insulation, of home insulation. I mean, it is. it ticks all the boxes. It's infrastructure spending, so you're allowed to borrow it stimulates the economy, it creates jobs, it saves people's money, it helps with energy shortages, it helps towards net zero. It is insane that this hasn't happened yet. It's been advocated by people like Miata Fanbule, who we have on the podcast occasionally, for a long time, um, Matsukato as well. I don't know why it hasn't happened yet. It really is a, a no-brainer with zero downsides. And perhaps an amnesty for all those people who blocked motorways in an attempt to achieve exactly this policy and were mm. locked up by Pretty Patel as a result. But I don't think we can necessarily expect that. Uh, Rachel, what do you think? Um, what one policy? Oh, yeah. gosh. Um, I think I think the welfare state needs is desperately in need of improvement. I think, you know... Everyone says it all the time, but just build more houses. You know, any 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 policy that that is going to dramatically improve the level of house building in this country will just improve social mobility. Mm. Um, oh, can just improve everything. You know, I think yeah. I think housing is just the first thing any new government needs to tackle. Really, beverage too. How about you, Naomi? Well, those are two great ones. So difficult to follow. I mean, obviously. From my perspective, anything that does a major redistribution of power and wealth is needed and needed 
you know, as a major priority, but that's not a policy. That is going to be a suite of policies linked to the housing stuff, um, land taxes and, and things like that, and proper devolution, particularly if we want to hold the union together. But, you know, English regional devolution is going to be incredibly important, I think, um, especially if we want to uh, level up the country to coin a horrible overused hackneyed conservative phrase um i think there's something around transport maybe um worth throwing in uh, germany and you know they're what nine euro tickets now on on all trains heavily subsidized travel will be great for the majority of people obviously not necessarily those in rural areas where there isn't much but maybe a, a, a subsidy for them on electric vehicles as a a sop to them um but i think they should be looking at mark drakeford and what he's done in in wales and there's been some absolutely fantastic stuff and as rachel was talking about welfare state some of the stuff he's done there is superb i mean huge amounts of cash for adopt who you know maybe uh, struggle to get a foot on the ladder and into tertiary education and all that sort of stuff. So um, yeah, he's done some really brilliant things that I think uh, Starmer could borrow and roll out nationwide. Well, I would think the NHS has to be the first priority at the moment, and I would argue that we have to stop making it hard for people to come here and work in the NHS because there clearly aren't enough qualified people uh, in this country who and. The answer is to put up wages and attract more people from abroad, certainly in the short term. But we are moving now onto that very topic. Not enough nurses, not enough doctors and definitely not enough GPs. The Health and Social Care Committee has just published a report into the NHS's staffing crisis. The numbers are bad, very bad. There are currently six and a half million people on NHS waiting lists. And the use of private health care for those lucky enough to be able to afford it, has gone up nearly 40%. The FT, in fact, asked last week whether the reason why older Britons haven't returned to work after the pandemic, as those in the EU mostly have, is because they're hanging around on waiting lists and unable to work. Meanwhile, for those healthy enough to get out of the country, tailbacks continue at Dover and Folkestone. Heathrow has lost £320 due to flight cancellations. And there's a train strike going on even as we record, with another one due on Saturday and even more in August. And make sure you take a quick shower and don't wash up your teacups individually. Yes, that is the advice, because the Environment Agency is warning a drought is coming if it doesn't rain hard soon. Naomi, both Truss and Sunak immediately denied that the problems in Kent had anything to do with Brexit. But they are wrong, aren't they? Yes. Next question. (laughs) (laughs) No, 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 no. Look, I mean, this denial is becoming increasingly ridiculous and hard to defend. Um, Even people who still think Brexit is a good idea know that this is about Brexit because it is just so bloody obvious. Uh, Most listeners will have seen Simon Calder, the travel journalist, doing some superb herb uh, pushback on this and you know it's common sense anyone can understand this you used to just have to wave your passport now it has to be stamped and it has to be stamped because if you are not an eu citizen you cannot stay in the eu for more than 90 days in any 180 days and that has got to be checked and so of course it takes longer sunak's come out saying oh i would um now improve Dutch and Danish relations to free up those ports so we're not so overly reliant on Dover. Guess what, Sunak? The Dutch and the Danes are in the EU too and they are going to have to do these checks as well. So it's just a complete nonsense, frankly. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Are there any obvious... Come on, journalists, push back more. (laughs) Are there any obvious solutions or is this going to happen every time there's a school holiday? Um, It is fixable by not but not by this government, not by one so ideologically wedded to Brexit that has got few other levers to pull and is is spent and out of ideas. Um, We need to improve the Brexit deal. Uh, We need a more internationalist government in order to have any hope of improving that. And for that, I've said it so many times in this podcast, we are going to need the opposition parties to work together at the next election, particularly if the new Prime Minister gets a bit of a pole bounce, uh, and particularly if the next election is fought on new boundaries. Um, And so for listeners that don't know what I'm talking about, um, the Boundary Commission has now reported, and if there is going to be an election after July 2023, that will be done on new constituencies. So you may find that your constituency changes, the constituency name 
name changes um, and the, the new boundaries and the fewer number of MPs that there will be um, will favour the Conservative Party to an extent um, and make it even more difficult for Labour to get the keys to number 10 on their own. Yeah, I think a lot of people are unaware of that. I wasn't until recently when I looked it up and realised that I was going to be in an entirely new constituency yeah, next time. Yeah, yeah. Alex, Liz Truss wants to make it illegal for workers on critical national infrastructure, and that includes the railways, to go on strike. Has she thought this through? I've been trying to probe this with various people who support her, and I have not been able to get a single cogent explanation of how she plans to do that. I mean... You can't force people to work who don't want to work. So presumably she's talking about some system of either incentive or punishment, um, which would almost instantly provoke a general strike. And remember, a general strike includes the civil service. Civil service strikes are very rare but very well observed because every civil servant I know is in a union. They take this very seriously. So I don't know how she's planning to do it. I don't know what the outcome is. There are people saying, just sack the people who strike and train up new people. And it's like, so what happens then when doctors strike and teachers strike? You know, in a country that's got labor shortages, where are all these, is the magical people tree right next to the magical money tree <laughs> in, in the same yard? You know, where are you finding all these people who are eager to be trained by a government that that is so clearly willing to discard them when they become inconvenient? So I, I just think it's a nonsense, to be honest. I think I think what they might try to do is, um, or what what they're trying to do is is kind of make it easier for a business or service to employ agency workers while while someone goes on strike. Yeah, go making the but they've done the strike, that already. The strike redundant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, I I mean I don't I think, know what she's talking about. I think you're right in saying that. It, it would be almost impossible to do, but I think they both both of the leadership contenders recognise that that they're looking at a summer of strikes. You know, and you know, nurses may go on strike in, yeah. by the end of the summer, Barristers. which which is which yeah. yeah, which is. I mean, I think it's it's much more difficult for people in government to kind of try to dismiss somebody like you know railway workers, yeah. even though it's very very inconvenient for the public when when those those workers go on strike, but much more difficult for them when it becomes to, when it comes to nurses. So I think they've got to have hard lines and some some ridiculous rhetoric to say in the meantime. Alex, there's been some confusion in Labour about whether it intends to renationalise rail, energy companies, and water. What is going on there? Well, their policy is in flux. Um, basically is what's going on there. They seem to be moving away from the renationalizing instincts of the Corbyn um, manifesto. I don't, I, I'm not entirely sure towards what. Um, I hope it is, because actually, you know, to me even, as a lefty um, person that's done economics, renationalization is becoming very old as a solution. So I hope they move towards a, a government being allowed to introduce a government-backed but independent player in all these sectors. I mean, clearly, that's the way to go. It's not to... When uh, directly-operated railways took over the East Coast Rail uh, because the franchise failed, the profits went up and went into back into the public coffer and the service was better and customer satisfaction was higher. So I don't know whether they can do things like that, for instance, with energy companies. I mean, energy companies, a lot of small ones are going bust now, and they're just reallocating randomly their customers to the big ones who are quite oligopolistic anyway. It, it is such an obvious solution to say, we will create a national energy company to uh, mop up those customers who end up uh, being left without, that will also really shake that market and introduce a, a bit of proper competition to it. Uh, well, I was just going to say, I think the problem that, that 
the I don't know if this is the Labour Party's position or not, but I think um, I think the problem that some people come against it up against is how do you compensate the, the shareholders if you want to take something back into into public control? But I think if it, if if you have a failure in the market, yeah. then then taking something into, into public control is a different kind of a different exactly. kind of question. When a franchise think, uh, contract yeah. runs out, you take that over. When a, an, uh, an energy company fails, you take those customers. It makes sense, even from a sort of neoliberal point of view, because you're introducing a new dynamic player to that market. Again, it's a win-win, really. Yeah, in, in Scotland, this is this is something that they already do. They've already with energy companies, they mm. put their own. And when you think about how much we've spent, I think it's billions we've spent trying to to keep bulb going. Is it bulb that the, the energy yeah, company yeah. going? And um, but, but and we've not. We could have transferred some of those customers just onto into into a public company, yeah. um, but, but but chose not to. We chose to bail them out, which um, which we don't talk about nearly enough, perhaps. Also in cases of failure. So, for instance, you know, this fight they're having with the water companies for pumping too much effluent into uh, water, they could actually, um, you know, make a very cogent case that they're failing the, the terms uh, under which they bought that bit of the, the network and take it back. Rachel Keir Starmer set out his tax strategy. There were no specifics in Liverpool this week. Did you find it convincing? <laughs> <laughs> With no specifics. Um, I think I think this was just about framing the debate as as he saw it, which and I think sort of he was trying to mimic Tony Blair's education, education, education with growth, growth, growth. One of the things I found really interesting was um, how he started to talk about the magic money tree, and it, I think they're trying to, like the thing that bothers him most, thing that scares the Labour leader most is, is, is looking like he's not responsible on the economy and that, that this accusation that Labour has a magic money tree will come back and be and they'll be clobbered with it at the next election. So I think they're trying to just appropriate that language to try and take the sting out of it at a later date. But in terms of content, yeah, there wasn't, wasn't a great deal in there other than we know that they're going to prioritise growth and that every policy they put forward now will have to go through a, a growth test to see if it contributes. Naomi, no one in the main parties is trying to reverse Brexit. But when YouGov asked people earlier this month if it had been the right decision, in retrospect, that is, 53% said no. That doesn't mean 47% said yes, by the way, because there's an awful lot of don't knows. But 53 is a record high. Are you trying to capitalise on that shift? At best for Britain, by any chance. <laughs> We're not that cynical. Um, this has been the trajectory of the polls since the referendum, um, depending on which way you ask it, good idea, bad idea, wrong decision, right decision. And I think there is a very big difference between asking people, do you think it was the right thing to do or not, and asking them, and should we reverse that decision, should we rejoin the EU? So it, it, we've got to always bear that in mind. Um when we're thinking about economic growth, though, the most frustrating thing is that none of the opposition parties, I mean, you get a bit of it from the Lib Dems, um, are, are prepared to talk about the fact that one of the you know most inhibiting things to growth at the moment is the lack of trade intensity that we have as a country now. Trade as a percentage of GDP is falling far faster in the UK than it is in other major economies. And, you know, yet again, uh, IMF forecasts putting us as having the, the, the slowest growth in the G7 other than Russia and on the precipice of a recession. Exactly, on the precipice of a, a recession. And one really quick way to have a shot in the arm for the economy, it won't solve everything, is to reduce trade barriers. And there is a huge amount we could do to reduce them without even having to renegotiate the TCA. A lot of this is self-imposed Brexit red tape that is crippling. Um, and we're just going to see more of that. And if you want to grow, if you want growth, you need to be attracting inward direct investment from foreign companies, from uh, you know other, other nation states. They are not going to do that when governance is poor in the country, when you cannot be trusted to stick to the international agreements that you sign, and when you cannot offer any certainty about things like regu regulatory equivalence, um, mutual recognition mm, of, mm. of qualifications and standards. These are all things that put people off investing. So like, they, need, they need the certainty to know what they're investing in. Any talk of growth without having an honest conversation about how much Brexit is crippling the economy and the kind of very hard Brexit that we've got is, is fanciful.
Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Alex, what have you got in store for us? So uh, the IFS, the Institute Institute for Fiscal Studies, just released a big paper on long COVID and found that uh, one in 10 workers with long COVID have to stop working while sick, so their symptoms are that bad. And this is leading to 110,000 people currently missing from the labour market, which is a, a huge number at a time of labour shortages, like I, like I said. And this equates to one and a half billion a year in lost earnings. So it's significant. And it's an area that, that is not getting enough attention. We keep bringing it up. It's very, very important, especially since we don't know uh, whether the current high prevalence of uh, COVID infections, just because the this form of the virus seems to be lighter, seems to have lower mort- mortality, it doesn't mean it's not going to leave people uh, in high proportions with long-term problems. So I think it, it really is something that needs looking at. Yeah, the long, the long COVID sort of specialists, if they can even be called that, given how new all of this is, do seem to suggest that you can get COVID and recover, get COVID again and recover and get it again and end up with long COVID. That, that you've escaped long COVID from mm. your first infection doesn't doesn't necessarily mean that you will next time you catch it. Rachel, how about you? Um, well, I was I was originally going to pick a story that was a bit more lighthearted, but um, I haven't. I've, um, I, <laughs> I'm going to talk about abortion rights. Um, there was a story in the Guardian this week of how Britain hosted a conference on freedom of religion and belief. Um, involved about twenty countries, and there was a joint text to sign. And the original statement included a commitment to repeal any laws that quote allow harmful practices or restrict women and girls' sexual and reproductive and health health and rights and bodily autonomy. That wording was removed from the text that they later signed. And um, Liz Truss opened this 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 conference, was was very involved in it, and it's not clear why this text was was removed from this from this joint statement. Rachel, um, this is amazing. This was my under the radar story last week. Oh, was it? Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I was just going to say that it, it got Massively followed up today. Massively important. You go for yeah, it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Update, it update. is. The, 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 the update today was that, you know, Caroline, Caroline Noakes, who's a Conservative Party MP, she's chair of the Women and Equalities Committee, she's started to notice it as well. And she's written to Liz Truss saying, why can't you explain what's happened here? Yeah. Why have we got no kind of answer? And I just wonder if we're not watching the long reach of the pro-life lobby yes. and where it might be in this in this country, I mean, I think when we had the Roe v. Wade decision, a lot of people were really shocked that Tory MP Scott Benton, who's a, who represents Blackpool South, um, tweeted this big "life wins." Yeah. Um, yeah. And I just think it. I just think it's there is an a area lot that we of need to Tea keep Party an eye on. money in the Conservative yeah. Party right now, and it's mm. very dangerous. I just think it's an area we need to to keep a, a closer eye on. I wonder if there's a, just this lazy assumption that that this is a liberal country and that nothing like that could happen. Here and you know, there's a big part of me that thinks that that's absolutely correct, but um, you know, the last few years has kind of taught everyone lessons that they didn't want to be taught. You know, <laughs> indeed. Naomi, what's your under the radar? Um, this is slightly linked to Alex's um, story because women are more likely to have long COVID than men. Um, but it was a story that got written up in a few uh, places. Um, the Times and The Guardian, certainly. And that's that almost half of women in the UK have done no vigorous exercise in the past 12 months, with most saying that they lacked motivation. Um, The percentages were were lower for men, but 55% um, saying that they lack the time owing to work, uh, compared with 46% of men. And riled me because of how it was written up and it was written up in particularly in the times as such a sort of sneering at women's laziness kind of way and no analysis or intervention from the journalist writing it up about why why are women less likely to be doing this is it perhaps because they have so much extra work on top of jobs that we know you know, disproportionately impacts them, whether it's caring for older relatives, whether it's caring for children, whether it's domestic work uh, that they still have to do. I'm just really sick of it. I'm really sick of 
and it, look, it speaks to Rachel's story as well, the way that we just are dismissing women's health so often and not understanding the structural causes of these things and just sort of saying, oh, for goodness sake, women, get off the sofa and get out there. And I mean, Judy Murray's quote, Andy Murray's mum in the piece sort of saying, oh, I, well, just go out for a run with friends. That's how I motivate, motivate myself. And do you know what? Where's the, the, the oh. recognition that if you are picking up toddlers and toys and pushing a buggy up a hill and that is fucking exercise. Mm. Yeah, and also that for, a lot, for a lot of the year as well, if you want to go out for a run on your own, it's it not is, safe. And a lot of women, understandably, don't want to go out no. and pound the streets. Um, and gyms are expensive. And gyms are expensive and it takes time to get to them and all the other reasons were. Yeah, yeah, no, 100%. How about you? Um, I found out today that apparently there's no need, according to the government, to see the dentist every six months, at least not if you're seeing an NHS dentist, because the time that you now uh, now need to wait for another new appointment in the NHS will be 12 months. It's been extended in an attempt to clear the massive backlog of people who cannot get an NHS dental appointment. Not just because our teeth have miraculously got better at... No. Um, chewing no. food and being guarded from self cleaning. In fact, in fact, <laughs> like fact, like COVID, ovens. This is new technology. <laughs> in fact, long COVID. If you've got lots of clots in your blood from long COVID, which is what seems to be the case for lots of people with long COVID, not all. Um, it means that your blood isn't carrying as much calcium to your bones, and therefore your teeth. Um, or, or finds it harder to carry it there. And so there is now uh, secondary problems associated with long COVID around osteoporosis and things like that. So, yeah, I, not only six months, it probably be every three months. And that's the show. Thanks to Naomi. Thank you very much. Alex. Thank you. And our guest, Rachel Weirmouth. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit, exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after our theme song, Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop, and a thanks to our latest backers. Hello and thanks from me to Callum Bradbury, Squiggle Jeff, Anne Spicker, Michael Harrison, Rivka Noronha, Chris Bloomfield, David Burke, Ian Lane, Simon Hunter and Terry Williams. And an enormous thank you from me and all the very best to David Bunce, Jim S, Helen Hayward, Gabor Giorfi, Max Wehr, Lars Eric Schmidt, Louis Wilson, Dan Jones, Margaret and Tom Rowland. And hello from me to Faye Clark, Sean Jordan, Tony, thank you Tony, Gareth Sexton, Mark Williams, Margaret Pierce, Jacob Borchers, Gavin Bennett, Freaking Geeks and Rick Bean. See you next time. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Roz Taylor with Naomi Smith and Alex Andreu. Audio production was from me, Robin Lieber. The producers are Jacob Archbold, Jelena Sofronevich and Alex Rees. Assistant producers, Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producers, Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. This week it was confirmed that next year's Eurovision Song Contest will be held in the UK, following Ukraine's predictable victory in May. It'll be the first time it's been held here since 1998, and we didn't even have to win the thing. (laughs) Finally, a Johnson benefit. According to the rules of the competition, it has to be a place with a 10,000 capacity venue, an international airport and accommodation for 4,000 people. But for comedic value, we're going to remove those criteria completely. So where do we want Eurovision 2023 to be? Rachel, what's your favoured location? <laughs> well, I think I think sort of the obvious answer is Wembley. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's the easiest place for people to get to. There are many... Ukrainian ref- refugees housed in in London. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, so it would be the most practical place for them. Plus, if 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 there are Ukrainian refugees elsewhere in the country, you know, why not show them the big city? Um, You're going to lose your northern stripes, though. For I know. This. They're going to come for you, Rachel. <laughs> that was a trailer for the bonus bit in this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what now? Every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as two pounds a month. You'll also get our weekly mini cast, oh God, what else? Every Monday morning, exclusive to backers. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week.